cool. Good morning. Please be seated. In the case Northwest Territories Francophone School Board, A.B. et al., the Minister of Education, Culture and Employment of the Northwest Territories, for the appellants, Francophone School Board of the Northwest Territories, A.B. et al., Perry Raven, Audrey Meran, Mark C. Power, Darius Bossé. For the intervener, Canadian Francophonie Research Chair on Language Rights, François Larocque. For the intervener, Commissioner of Official Languages of Canada, Elie Ducharme. For the intervener, National Federation of Francophone School Boards, Roger J.F. Lepage. For the intervener, National Board of Francophone Parents, David Taylor and Maritza Vuel. For the intervener, New Brunswick Acadia Society, Dominique Caron. For the intervener, Yukon Francophone School Board, Paul Daly. For the respondent, Minister of Education, Culture and Employment of the Northwest Territories Etal, Maxime Fay, Alyssa Tompkins. Paul McKenna and Tristan Joannette. For the intervener, Attorney General of Canada, Ian Demers. For the intervener, Attorney General of Quebec, Manuel Klein and Vicky Sanson. For the intervener, Attorney General of the Yukon Territory, Keith Brown and Lauren Marr. Perry Raven. Perry Raven. Chief Justice, Justices, you should have our condensed book with two volumes. The first deals with Section 23 and the second with the right of to use both official languages before the courts. Our argument is laid out at the first tab of each volume. I will begin with the first question on section 23 and the first volume of the condensed book. I propose speaking to this issue for 30 minutes and then 30 minutes on the second right, the right to use both official languages before the courts. Are you going to uh, talk to the Federation of Discretion? I will during my arguments on Section 23, but I will mostly focus on the constitutional argument. The fettering of discretion has to do with the fact that the minister did not consider Section 23 in the exercise of her discretion. Yes, I understand 
but we can also dissociate the two insofar as we could say that the reasonableness or not of the minister's original decision has to do with the fact that she fettered her discretion which was provided for by law uh, in and of itself without going further uh, technically isn't that true it is distinct it's different isn't it I agree however given that the Court of Appeals decision has a broad uh, a precedent when there is a, a discretionary decision made regarding minority language rights holders it is a, in our view very important for the court to allow the appeal for this reason but I also agree with you that the administrative aspect is also at play this case deals with this court's jurisprudence regarding section 23 according to which when a provincial or a territorial government and when an education minister has a has power of discretion and makes a decision that affects the rights of the linguistic minority that minister must consider the purpose of section 23 in their decision making it is not just that uh, the decision must be made that the section was violated the purpose of the section must be considered let's go to tab 2 for the Arsenault Cameron decision in this case the court said that the minister at PEI using their discretional power to decide whether a French a new French school should be constructed in Summerside or whether um, the budget should be used to increase transportation to an existing school it was not just a question of whether the minorities rights were violated but it was important to consider uh, section 23 in his decision-making and also its reparative nature in paragraph 30 that you have in yellow the court says when the minister made his decision he did not uh, attribute reservation de la sufficient importance to the role of the French language commission when weighing the cultural and educational values but it is essential to fully consider the reparative nature of the right on the following page at paragraph 44 when the minister exercises his discretion to refuse a proposal pursuant to the regulation the power is restricted by the reparatory uh, character of the section The same principle is found in Solsky, for example, which is at tab 3. In Solsky, the court said the Quebec education minister, when 
considering a student's educational background to determine whether they were eligible. Looked at Section 23 to just determine whether or not to allow their enrollment and also has to, had to consider the purpose of Section 23. And at page at the end of the paragraph on the next page in yellow, a qualitative assessment of the situation is necessary to determine whether there is evidence of a genuine commitment to a minority language educational experience. Each province, with each province exercising its discretion, in light of its particular circumstances, obligation to respect the objectives of Section 23 and educational policies. This brings me to make two clarifications on this current case. First, this case does not deal with rights of uh, parent rights holders who want access to school. Rather, it is about children of non-rights holders and the effect on the, their enrollment on the Francophone school environment. The majority of the uh, Court of Appeal at paragraph 60 of their reasons seem to say the following. Non-rights holders cannot latch on to rights holders' rights. Your position seems to be that that is a mistake. Because here we're talking about the rights of rights holders and how the situation of non-rights holders can have an impact on those rights. That's exactly correct. So enrollment or the refusal of enrollment has a direct impact on the minority language school. It's not out of ignorance that Section 23 was not considered this court has repeatedly said that Section 23 must be generously interpreted and that not only does it have a repertory effect but a unifying effect. We have said so repeatedly. And courts of appeal, including that of Alberta, do not seem to understand this message. I agree. However, you are drawing the nuance in the difference between the status of rights holders compared to the status of non-rights holders. Does that nuance bring us to Doré and bring us to uh, reading into the purpose and the value? I'll answer in two points. First, we think there's a way to resolve this file sticking to the jurisprudence on Section 23 because it is so clear that when a minister is exercising discretion, they always have to take into account the purpose of Section 23 and the effect on the minority language school. That's why I began with Arsenault, Cameron, and Skolski. We don't need to immediately turn to Doré, even though, yes, Doré does also say that the, the protections of the Charter also need to come into play in the decision-making. That's the first point. But when it comes to the values of the rights, 
versus the rights of right, rights holders. In this case, the parties agree that decisions regarding enrollments into minority schools can lead to a violation of Section 23. There is a disagreement when it comes to whether the minister always needs to consider the purpose of 23 in decision making or only when the decision would violate the rights holder's right to minority language education. That is the real question in this matter. So when it comes to the effects that decisions can have on rights holders, and Justice, I will come back to your question about when exactly is the right violated. The admission of children of non-rights holders does have an effect on rights holders and directly on the scholastic environment that they grow up in. And it can be in a positive or negative way. Firstly, the admission of children of non-rights holders, for example, unilingual uh, Anglophones could be uh, have an adverse effect and could ultimately have a negative impact on the experience of rights holders and have an adverse impact on the community. However, in other cases, the admission of children of uh, non-rights holders who speak French and even speak French very well can also, such as in the case of the Northwest Territories, where there is a, a difficulty in, in promoting and growing the fr Francophone community, the admission of those students could contribute to the Francophone community. What about looking at the file through the angle of the rights of rights holders? So rights holders have the right to education in French, to a thriving minority community, and so forth. And you are asking us to look at the case through this lens, through the rights of rights holders, which is uh, affected by the decision to either uh, admit or not admit children of non-rights holders. Yes, it is a qualitative, qualitative analysis. So if there are uh, significant difficulties growing the Francophone community, such as in this small community in the territories, and that is what we see in this case, if the minister does not address these problems in other ways, and there are students who speak French very well and want to attend the minority language school, it is relevant for the minister to consider that in her decision making, to consider what impact that admission will have on growing the Francophone community. And that is the application of Section 23. So if there are significant problems in growing the community, then there are problems under Section 23. The uh, minister must consider the positive impact that the government must uh, vigilantly carry out. So you're talking about the minister's responsibility to address problems that may exist, but in the BC um, school, Francophone School Board case, we see that Section 23 has a reparative but also a preventive nature. So isn't the government responsible for being preventive here to ensure that the Francophone community will thrive? Yes. We say that the respondent 
is saying that it's necessary to show that there was a violation to the rights of right holders in order for the minister to need to take section 23 into account but that is counter to the preventive nature of the right because then in fact we would be waiting until rights holders lost their right to education in the minority language in order for a minister to consider this so that perspective runs counter to the purpose of this right. I would like to quickly draw your attention to certain pieces of evidence because I think it's important to uh, determine how the minister should have proceeded in this case. At tab 4 you have the school board's F-port for the first child. Turn the page and in yellow you have the school board's assessment whether or not this child should be uh, recommended to the minister. So what is the impact of allowing these uh, children to attend the school on the Francophone community? This community has a high rate of assimilation that has an adverse effect on the transmission and maintenance of the French language. The assimilation in Hay River is up to 70%. In Yellowknife it is 50%. The uh, Northwest Territories Francophone School Board must tirelessly work on strategies and practices to uh, ensure the viability of the French language. Such admissions are helpful in stopping or at least slowing the effects of assimilation and exogamy that continually threaten the survival of the French language in the territories. Lower on the page in yellow. How does the admission of these students help advance teaching of French as a first language? Admitting the, these students will allow the board to achieve its mission of maintaining a francophone school environment. It does not mean there is an extra burden on the school because these, child, these children already speak French. If we add a child to a class when the child already speaks French, this can even help the children of that, the parents of that child to learn to speak French. There's also the argument that it would be a financial burden, and I'm paraphrasing the minister's decision, involved in admitting children of non-rights holders to these schools. Is that what you are addressing in this paragraph? And what can you say about that evidence? No, the consequences financiers. Um, financial consequences. My first answer is that for the appellants, the fundamental problem in the minister's decision, the first one in 2019, is that she did not consider the purpose of Section 23. As for the second series of decisions, the five files, five additional files, the purpose of Section 23 is mentioned several times, but she didn't actually examine how the admission of a child who speaks French well will help or harm 
the situation and the vitality of the community. So this second set of decisions is also uh, unreasonable. The minister relied on other considerations, for example, financial considerations for her government. As in itself, that's not really a problem if you examine other factors, whether financial factors are the most important is another question, but there has to be a balance struck. And in some cases, one wouldn't want to admit a, a child who does not speak English, who does not speak French, rather, unilingual Anglophone, based on Section 23's purpose. Ultimately, the problem for us is that the minister did not seriously consider Section 23 as required by Vavilov. What is the impact of your position, the government's position, in letting non-rights holders be admitted to respond to 23 when it comes to the internal limit, the where numbers warrant requirement? Answer, it's not an obligation to admit non-rights holders' children, but rather to examine the purpose of Section 23 when it comes to admitting non-rights holders. The minister is relying on the premise that considering the purpose of Section 23 will lead to admissions. That's not what we're saying. And this is not a quantitative analysis. We're not saying every single additional child will contribute to the purpose of Section 23. It's a qualitative analysis. If children are having problems with French, then it's worthy to consider the French language it, when examining admission. With this position, over here, with your position, there is no reason to avoid the Doré uh, ruling because that is exactly what it says regarding Section 23. I agree fully with you. Section 23 jurisprudence, Arsenault Cameron and Salsky, for example, are compatible with Baker, with Dory, with current administrative law, in addition to respecting the rights of the Charter, they must also, administrators must also look at the values. There, there is consistency, question, and they agree with Vavilov. There's nothing per se that contradicts, that makes Doré and Vavilov contradict each other. Yes, Vavilov says that an administrative administrator, rather, must proactively justify the decision taking into account factual and judicial restraints. You can't simply just mention, however, the purpose. You have to actually examine the impact. To follow up on what Justice Martin says, do you not think that focusing on values and purpose rather than the actual right facilitates for an adjudicator 
the exercise of the, his or her discretionary power. The adjudicator will better understand why, for a non-rights holders, I must, I, the adjudicator, must take account of Section 23. As Justice Martin said, when non-rights holders apply, the, ex uh, the requirements of DORE facilitate the analysis. Do you see? I agree with you. As you just said now, it is not necessary. In fact, I'm wondering if we can use that argument that it's not necessary, except perhaps technically speaking. That leads me to make a few remarks on the uh, respondent's approach, and I'll perhaps deal with Dore more there to enrich my response. The respondent is proposing that the uh, decision maker, the minister in this case, makes mention of protections of Section 23. This is in keeping with the jurisprudence. I'd also say that the approach does not work well with Section 23 because of its collective dimension, the sec section's collective dimension, and the positive duty imposed on the government. It's often in the accumulation of administrative decisions regarding Section 2023 that there is a violation as such. For example, the admission of 50 unilingual Anglophone pupils. If that were the case, the respondent recognizes that there would be a violation of, of uh, rights. At what point, however, does the violation under section, section 23 occur? When do the rights holders lose their right to uh, attend a French language education, uh, school? Is it when you admit five unilingual children? Ten, how many? Five should not violate their rights, the right holders' rights. And the situation is comparable when you refuse entry to non-rights holders who speak French well. If there are French language problems in a minority school, a minority language school, that is, it's difficult, a, a challenge to implement Section 23, and the government has no other options, letting several children attend the school who are French speakers but non-rights holders would help the francization of the school. But here, it's claimed there's a violation of Section 23. And this violation increases with the government's obligation, uh, positive duty to uh, uh, letting five children into the school. Unilingual, five, five unilingual children is more likely to violate the rights of the rights holders than letting in five French language speaking children.
this approach. I believe affects the remedial and unifying and preventive nature of this section. And according to Section 23 jurisprudence, it's important to insist that according to current administrative uh, law jurisprudence, the administrative decision maker must proactively respect the fundamental values of the Charter without waiting for proof of a violation of rights. The respondent's approach completely eliminates that role from the administrator's work. That is to ensure value, the, eliminates this consideration for, sector, for charter values. Charter protections must be as robust in administrative law That is why the dis administrative decision maker has that proactive role. But the respondent's approach removes responsibility from the decision maker and there is no uh, burden of justification as there is in Oaks. What I would say then is that the respondent's approach erodes charter protections in the administrative context. That's one more reason to be prudent. Not only does it counter 20, and it also counters Section 23 jurisprudence. Question perhaps here. the minister should not only generally generously consider the purpose of section 23 the minister the government has the duty to implement section 23 so must do more than simply respect section 23 and must comment on it Does Section 23's specific character have an impact on the analysis? The collective character, that is. Answer, in my opinion, yes, in two ways. First of all, to say that it's particularly problematic to wait uh, until there is violation, given there's preve the preventive character of the uh, section, Section 23, the minister needs to not only take into account possible violations but prevent them. So I think the preventive nature of Section 23 does in fact have an impact in the approach. When it comes to proportionality and the value of this criterion, well, after having seriously taken into account the purpose of Section 23 and taken an balancing approach, taken account of other factors. Other factors could be relevant, the, f the fact that the government's worried about the viability of other schools in the area, for example. 
the minister can take account of other factors, but it is important, given the preventive and remedial nature of the section, to, uh, to have a balanced approach. I've almost reached 30 minutes. What's most important here, and I will conclude on this, regarding Section 23, is that there would be major negative consequences for the minority language communities if you allow education ministers or administrators to make decisions affecting the minority without considering the purpose of Section 23 in the Charter. I will now turn to my second theme. Will you allow me to ask a last question? At uh, tab four, you just cited the reasons for the uh, decision to admit or not admit a child. If the factual basis for the minister's decision is wrong, if her consideration of the school's flourishing or development is not understood, if she hasn't properly understood this aspect, does that make her decision unreasonable? Does that alone make it unreasonable? I think, I'm thinking of her uh, view of registrations, admissions in Yellow, Yellow Knife and Hay River, uh, the claim that they're, the question of whether there is a drop in admissions or When it comes to the rebalancing approach, is it, it, it does the, the fact that she did not examine or did not consider the vitality of the com communities make it an unreasonable decision? Answer, the, the respondents claim that even if the minister took into account the fact that the, even if she had taken into account the pre-kindergarten figures, she should have ultimately taken into account the qualitative impact of emissions on the school. Given that we're talking about the S23 purpose and community vitality, a fundamental error when it came to assessing these numbers is a problem when it comes to reasonability. Uh, yes, problematic. I think that perhaps uh, you should be more specific. You need to say why it's unreasonable. If the factual basis used for the rebalancing 
with regard to this idea of promoting the vitality of a minority language community. According to Vavilov criteria, is that not enough to taint the decision? I think it is. I think that's enough to taint the decision. And in all cases, the decision is unreasonable because the minister did not take S23 purpose into account. Quantitative. The minister considered numbers in her decision making, and you say that the decision can still be unreasonable if there's no qualitative assessment. Even if the minister had not committed any errors on the numbers, yes, it would still be unreasonable because the minister still did not uh, consider how the admission of one of the children who spoke French very well could have a positive or negative impact on the school's environment and on the thriving of the community. That's an important aspect under Section 23, even if there had not been any mistakes about the numbers. Donc je me tourne maintenant vers la question de l'article 19 de la turn to section 19 of the charter and the uh, language rights of the individuals in this case. I will be using volume number 2 of the condensed book. Our argument is outlined at tab 24. In your arguments on this matter I'm understanding that this matter was put before the Court of Appeal regarding the deficient interpretation. Yes, but it's not only a problem of interpretation. As soon as the court decided that three judges could not directly understand French, Section 9.1 of the OLA and Section 19 of the Charter were violated. And was there a complaint? Yes, immediately. Tab 49, in January 2020, the court said that there were not three, a panel of three judges who could directly understand French. Unfortunately, we do not have three bilingual judges at the court, so all documents, including evidence, must be translated and an interpreter must be hired. Later, we see that the trial was delayed. The following tab, the appellant's uh, counsel say the lack of bilingual judges violate the uh, language rights of our clients and of our rights as counsel. All of the burdens and the harm that flowed from this violation, the fact that uh, time and resources had to be given to interpretation and translation, that the council, when speaking, had to slow their pace because they were being interpreted, not only were the nuances of their arguments were lost, but also, or rather, this is not a uh, proof of violation. These are inevitable consequences of the fact that there was interpretation. There was a panel of judges that could not directly understand the appellants. And under 19 of the Charter, 
and Section 9.1 of the Official Languages Act had to be considered and their purpose had to be considered and the judge had to understand the appellants directly. Of course, this goes against the existing jurisprudence. Um, how we understand the right to use one of the official languages before courts in Canada. Are you asking this court to overturn that precedent? This court has already spoken to restrictive interpretation in uh, Society of Acadians. That was in Bolac. So this is probably the first time that the question is asked to the court so explicitly. But interpretation, the interpretation has already been uh, struck down strongly in 2021 in CSAB. There was mention of the restrictive interpretation of language rights. I'll speak for myself. There's a huge difference between the interpretation of rights and the way the rights must be interpreted and be set aside afterwards. In Bolac and the decisions thereafter, including our decision in 2018, regarding those decisions, despite the fact that you're not wrong that Bolac and Conseil Scolaire and other rulings include suggestions. But when it comes to the Société des Acadiens decisions, it's very difficult to say to the Supreme Court a decision has been set aside. Is that the case in your view? Yes. In the Société des Acadiens decision, it, that decision cannot stand. That is not what I'm asking. I'm asking what, what is the strength of the precedent? Because are we or are we not bound by Société des Acadiens? I am simply saying that recently there is there have been suggestions that this could be an opportunity to revisit the decision, Société des Acadiens. I would like to highlight that in the respondents' factum, they say that Section 19 of the Charter was interpreted to include a right to be understood with or without interpretation, the help of an interpreter. And you have this at tab 38 of our book. But this is simply false. The majority found in Société des Acadiens that the Charter does not guarantee any rights to be understood, whether with the help of an interpreter or not. The interpretation was not at play here. And Société des Acadiens must be set aside. The majority in Société des Acadiens bases the right to be understood fully on fairness of trial to reach that 
conclusion, they look at the restriction of rights, and I won't go into it further, but basing the right to be understood entirely on fairness of trial, it is similar to Karka. If the notwithstanding clause had been invoked, the litigants would have had a right to speak the official language of their choice, but would have had absolutely no right to be understood by the court in that language. So they had the right, in other words, to speak but not be understood. Section 19 is in a Charter of Rights which protects the rights of individuals against the state must be compatible with its purpose as the court said in Masrani and in Bolak. So language rights before the courts aim to protect the status of the official languages. I would like to mention Kafka because in what you're saying you are not including something about interpretation. You're talking about the right to be understood without the assistance of an interpreter. Isn't that right? Because one of the problems which was highlighted in Société des Acadiens was in relation to 133 of the Charter is that the consequences of what you are asking uh, is important and you have to be very clear what you are asking. You're talking about Kafka. I have uh, the right to speak the language of my choice even though no one in the room will understand. Isn't this going a bit too far? Because the value of the assistance of the interpreter is perhaps not fully considered. According to Société des Acadiens, the help of an interpreter only has to do with fairness of trial. I'll take an extreme example where fairness of trial does not apply, given, for example, that a notwithstanding clause had been invoked. But what's being said is that Section 19 doesn't change whether or not there is an interpreter. I think it's right to refer to Kafka because the right to use one's language has to be protected. On the other side, there was an argument that Section 19 did not apply to the courts of the Northwest Territories. What do you say to that? I know that the Northwest Territories Official Languages Act itself has similar provisions, but it's said that the Charter Section does not apply. Yes, and in our factum, we outlined arguments that Section 19 does directly apply because the courts of the Northwest Territories are courts established by Parliament and that the Parliament, Parliament cannot ignore its rights. Uh, the enforcement of its rights in the Northwest Territories. 
and the parties agree that Section 9.1 of the Northwest Territories OLA and has to be interpreted in the same way as that charter section. And in 1994, the, the uh, Territorians had to copy out Section 19 of the Charter into their OLA because Parliament had not ruled directly on the matter. And they, the Territories received significant funding from the federal government, and this provision was enshrined into the Northwest Territories law. Following up on my colleague Justice Casera's question regarding the impact of this decision, can I take it that from this moment, everywhere in Canada, all judges would have to be bilingual, would have to be capable of directly understanding French and English? No. It's very important to not confuse institutional bilingualism and individual bilingualism. So in concrete terms, Firstly, regarding federal courts, the right of being directly understood is, has been under the OLA, protected under the OLA for decades. Then, uh, institutional bilingualism, what does it mean? Concretely, when the courts and territories must hear a case in French, the panel of judges must be made up of either francophone or um, bilingual judges, either from Saskatchewan, Alberta, and Nunavut, uh, and the Yukon. Am I understanding that this is one of the things you are asking? Because usually the court Rather, this question that you have raised regarding the interpretation of Section 19 is an alternative for your first question. I think that given this historic agreement that I mentioned, 9.1 of the OLA must be interpreted in the same way as Section 19. It's not because the Charter has an impact on the way provincial laws are interpreted. It's because 9.1 must be just as strong as Section 19. The Northwest Territories cannot underplay the importance of 9.1. And that's what we find at Section 32 of the Northwest Territories Law that you have at Tab 36. The same interpretation must be given to 9 and 19. And that is why Société des Acadiens is related. So there's the question of individual or institutional bilingualism. And you say there should be indi individual bilingualism, no, institutional. Let's say there's a court with no francophones or no bilingual judges. Well, of course, a declaration from this court that Section 19 or Article 9 would require bilingualism will affect courts, will require changes. The respondent says this will cause incalculable impacts. I've said that there should be 
one or perhaps more judges who are bilingual based on the number of files. It's not that everyone has to be bi being bilingual. The respondent has said incalculable. That's not just the respondent who said that. This court said that in Société des Acadiens. And I quote, such a requirement, what you're asking of the court would incalculable, would have incalculable consequences and would be a roundabout and implicit way to change the provisions of the Constitution with regard to the judiciary. Is this comment so outdated that we have to move to something else? This same court in Société des Acadiens on page 580 recognizes that the logical consequence of equality for section 19 would be institutionally bilingually bilingual courts Société des Acadiens was an in 1986 decision but as of 1998 criminal courts have been fully bilingual institutionally bilingual and this should be the case for the Court of Appeal of the Northwest Territories and all common law administrative courts should also be bilingual all those who fall under 530 should also be bilingual that's the inconvenience of pleading before the Supreme Court of Canada. We have the drama of consequences. If we make a link between 133 and 19, then we need to think about the repercussions, as B J Justice Betts did in Société des Acadiens in raising the incalculable scope of the impact. That's what I'm asking. It, the, the wish is applaudable, but that's not the point. The desire is applaudable. And in an ideal world, and it would be desirable, in 2022, every litigant would be able to speak to judges or justices in either official language. It's regrettable that the Court of Appeal was un unable to provide three bilingual judges. But, as my colleague said, the impact of such a declaration, well, the impact would be serious. The, and the impact would go far beyond this current case. I have two responses to your questions. First, first of all, with regard to administrative organizations, and the respondent raises this very important point, would this obligation apply to a given administrative organization in the Northwest Territories? The answer relies, depends on several factors. The respondent in paragraph three mentions the Office of Waters and Lands in the Northwest Territories and says that if this, were, this obligation were in place, there could not be indigenous representation, but this administrative organization was constituted based on a uh, land claims settlement 
protected by Section 35 of the Constitution. It seems to, to us that this is not a court established by either the Northwest Territories or the federal government, and so this criterion would not apply. You'd have to examine each specific exam, uh, administrative organization. As for quasi-judicial courts or organizations, we don't believe the bilingualism requirement would apply. As for the comparison with 133 of the Constitution, McDonald is based on a restrictive interpretation of linguistic rights. It's possible that in another case, the, the court would have to review the dis, this decision. At any rate, or in all cases rather, Section 19 was adopted in a very distinct context, different from that of 133 of the Constitution. Given this very distinct, this great distinction in the context, 1867, or the Charter of Rights and Liberties, the, which has a liberal interpretation, which allows a liberal interpretation, it's possible that there would be an impact on Article 133. I don't want to avoid the question, but that's not what we're deciding today. But the question is worthy because in Mercure, Justice Laforet reminded us, and it's not just Article 133, it's also the 1870 Manitoba Act that comes into play here. All these provisions have been written differently, drafted differently, but use similar expressions and tend to be interpreted in the same way. That's why I'm raising these issues. I'm not trying to say you're wrong. I'm just saying it's prudent. Perhaps prudent is re prudence is required. Perhaps you can go back to Justice Amal's comments just now. The first yes. court of appeal, the, the first uh, grounds for appeal, is that enough? That is, no, the first grounds of appeal, ground for appeal that you have stated before the Supreme Court, Supreme Court to uh, defend your client's situation, your uh, a client's claim, rather, if you had to, if you did win for the, on the first ground, would the second ground, is the second ground necessary? It is necessary because linguistic rights are substantive rights. They're not procedural rights. And you don't remedy a violation of a linguistic right with a decision based on the merits of a case. There are two different remedies required. One, to grant the appeal, and two, a declaration that linguistic rights were violated. Let's say, and as my colleague said, we, we haven't reached this point, let's say that your appeal is granted on the first question. You're saying, given what happened at the Court of Appeal, given we didn't have three bi bilingual judges, we didn't have three bilingual judges, we were prejudiced. 
but if your appeal is granted, then why do you need a declaration on 19 and 133? Well, according to this court in Masrani, the prejudice is the impact itself, the fact that, or rather the fact itself that linguistic rights were not respected. But the case was not put together to de demand that there be a declaration on 133 and 19. It was simply to allow admission to a French language school for your clients, access to French language instruction. You wrote a letter to the court, but the Court of Appeal did not address this in its decision. It's difficult for us to address this for the first time here then. Since I only have two more minutes, I will attempt to respond to this question of principle. I think the question needs to be answered this way. The, the, this question does not rely on Société des Acadiens. It does not rely, rely on substantive equality. If you interpreted S-19 with a view to substantive equality, no matter how good the interpretation was, a hearing in which interpretation is required to understand a litigant speaking French, members of the French language community, when the justice uh, or the judge directly understands an English-speaking litigant or members of the English community, is incompatible compatible with genuine equality. When there's an entire system of interpretation set up so that judges understand official languages, that means French is treated like a foreign language. There's no equality of status. This is distinct from natural justice. Interpretation does not allow equality of status of both official language communities. We don't need to rely... Uh, we don't need to rely on Société des Acadiens but the right to substantive equality does allow this interpretation. Maître François Larocque. François Larocque. Chief Justice, Justices. I'd like to simply discuss Section 19 and the use of French language in courts established by the Parliament, established by Parliament. It is time to... Uh, bang the last nail in the coffin of the decision, Société des Acadiens. This is a, it was a compromise, political compromise, a defective premise. The majority in Société des Acadiens says the right to use French or English in courts does not mean the right to be understood directory, directly. Bolac rejected the doctrine of political compromise. That was the first nail in the coffin. 
NCF, S, uh, the British Columbia French School Board oh. decision, it was said that those days are gone, the days of Société des Acadiens. And now we need to examine Société des Acadiens and not void Section 19 of its content. Doing so would simply mean the right to an interpreter, a right that is already allowed by the Charter. So today, Section 19 must be interpreted in a purposive way, starting with the wording. However, the majority in Société des Acadiens looked at the I looked at sections 16, 17, and 20 before looking at the wordings in those provisions. No dictionary or other resource was used in their limited reading of section 19. We will use the Oxford English Dictionary to show that truly section 19 allows for a functional and operative right in front of the courts, the right to express oneself and be understood in the official language of one's choice. Languages are to be used for communication. Section 19 is compatible with the purpose of sections 19 and 17 of the Charter. As this court has repeatedly said, this charter and its adoption changed the status quo for official languages, remedied wrongs of the past, and established a new partnership between linguistic communities because of the substantive equality of French and English. 16 to 23 of the charter show the importance of ensuring institutional and societal conditions that will allow official language minority communities to be maintained and to develop as equal partners the Canadian Federation. French and English must be equal. The access to uh, equal quality services at the federal level in both languages must be ensured. And access to the most important institutions, parliament and courts must be ensured. Mr. Larocque, you mentioned the importance of the term use. And you say that in those definitions is included the importance of communication. So when I use a language, there's this concept of communication. However, the word communicate is not in section 19, but it is in section 20. What can you say on when Parliament uses the word in 20 but does not use it in section 19? Thank you for the question, Justice Cote. I think we can look at Section 20 and see that the Constitution guarantees the right to use the official language of one's choice for two main interactions with the government. Number one, to communicate directly with the government, and two, for receiving services. So the choice of official language is protected for that those two types of activities. I think that is spe specified in the wording for those two types of interactions. So services and direct communication. And the term use is included, which uh, 
implies a bilateral communication and interaction. Thank you. Mr. Ducharme, Chief Justice, Justices. The Board wishes to make two main points. First, in certain circumstances, children of non-rights holders being uh, admitted to schools is critical under the right in question. Secondly, the rights of all Canadians to use official languages between the, before the courts where it excludes the right to be understood is inconsistent and the protection or rather the existence of the community must be maintained in order for these rights to be ensured. The admission of non-rights holders has a direct impact on rights holders in the schools and in the communities. School becomes a haven of exchange and learning in the minority language. It is an important gateway into the community in a world where there are so many paths away from that community. It is important to ensure the transmission of the minority language and culture. When a child of a non-rights holder can contribute to creating a more conducive school environment for a thriving minority language community for rights holders, this contribution clearly promotes the thriving of the minority community. Yes, the non-rights holder does not have a right to have access to the school, but I will come back to the territories and the province whose responsibility it is to decide under which circumstances admission should be allowed. Regarding rights to be admitted to schools, qualitative and quantitative factors, including population information, must be considered because it's important to take into consideration the future of the linguistic minority communities and cases should be looked at on a case-by-case -case basis. Firstly, the particular context of the community should be considered, the community and its needs to remedy the wrongs of the past and to ensure its maintenance and development in the future. More, the more the needs the community has, the more they should be considered. The ability of the non-rights holder child should also be considered and their, the probability that they will contribute positively to the community. This court recognized that school boards are privileged vectors of official minority languages. The assessment of a non-rights holder child to meet the needs of a community must also include the community's point of view as communicated by a school board, board for example. Next, my second point. The right to be understood directly by the court. This right 
the the right for one speaker to be understood directly while the other speaker is understood through an interpreter is significant. This creates an obstacle that decreases the chances for speakers to choose their preferred language. When courts interpret language rights, courts must use an interpretation that will preserve and develop the minority language community. In this context, the only interpretation that would do so is the interpretation that would allow the speaker to be directly understood. In your factum, unless I'm mistaken, you do not mention the link that should or should not be made between 19 and 133 of the Constitution Act. Mr. Larocque and other interveners also have made uh, have made the distinction. Can you comment on this? Is there a link between 19 and 133? We agree with the research chair's point of view. I won't go into it further, but we support his submission. Thank you. Mr. Lepage. Thank you, Justices. We have five arguments on Section 23 on behalf of the National Federation of Francophone School Boards. Firstly, The admission of the non-rights holders is solicited by rights holders because it would have a positive impact on rights holders. The minority school board is asking for the admission of the non-rights holders. The denial of admission for non-rights holders has a direct impact on the development of the community. It is important to remedy wrongs of the past when speaking about the admission of non-rights holders. Any decision to admit or not admit a non-rights holder should be made while considering Section 23. Also, the government has not acted and has failed to respect a Section 23 and has made uh, deliberate attempts at assimilation and these historic wrongdoings must be remedied. The board asks for the admission of certain non-rights holders to rectify the situation so that rights holders can experience substantive equality. We are not asking for every admission to be approved for non-rights holders. This is important not only in the Northwest Territories, but also across Canada. The historic violation of the rights has been uh, looked at repeatedly in the past. To determine whether the wrongs of the past have been remedied, or rather, in order to remedy the wrongs of the past, the admission of certain non-rights holders is an option for an appropriate and just remedy under Section 24 of the Charter. In Boudreaux, 
the courts were invited to apply appropriate remedies. If it does not, then the state benefits from the wrongdoings. The rights that allow admission of non-rights holders are a remedy under Section 24, and this must be considered when these regulations and policies are read. Fourth point, the state's power to deny admission to non-rights holders is not absolute as the Court of Appeal claims. It must pass through the three-pronged Section 23. The state cannot absolutely deny the admission of non-rights holders as the Northwest Territories and its Court of Appeal claim. The state must consider the unique context of the school and community. The Supreme Court recognized this principle in paragraph 64 of the Yukon decision in 2015. Even if a Francophone school board cannot unilaterally admit non-rights holders, the Supreme Court recognized that a Francophone school board can express that a state's approach to admissions can be an obstacle of the purpose of Section 23, which is what we are currently seeing in the Northwest Territories. Number five, the enforcement of Section 23 must consider the specific context of each territory and the impact on the territory of increasing immigration. The context is not the same from one region to the next. I would refer you to Solsky at paragraph 24. The denial to admit six non-rights holders can be disastrous for a small community such as Hay River, although the impact in Montreal or Ottawa would not be as, as great. Since the 2000s, immigration has changed the face of Canada. We now have a plural francophonie in our country. If section 23 cannot be protected, there's no longer substantive equality in education. The wording itself of Section 23 makes it so that uh, the, there is not absolute power to deny the admissions of non-rights holders. The admission of them is necessary to ensure the purpose of Section 23 and to allow a reparation a remedy under Section 24. Thank you. David Taylor. Merci, Monsieur le Juge en Chef, Mesdames et Messieurs. Thank you, Justice, Justices. We will deal with two subjects this morning the role of ministers across the country, ministers of education, and the way that Doré, the Doré framework applies. First, we're going to look at Section 23 which means that the minister must be an active partner in the minority education setting. The minister and the province or territories that they serve cannot just create a school board, give it powers and controls, and leave. 
there are two distinctive roles in the education system, the role of the minister and the role of the board. The minister has obligations that go above and beyond its obligations to the Francophone School Board. The Yukon Francophone School Board decision by this court in 2016 determined that it was only the minister who decides on the admission of non-rights holders and not the school board, but it did not reduce the obligations of the ministers since this court's decision in Arsenault Cameron. It is therefore important to understand that Section 23 requires provinces to make major institutional changes. The minister has an anemic view of Section 23 with minimum, a minimum threshold rather than ensuring the uh, preservation and thriving of the community. As for the Dore framework, the CNPF believes that the standard of review, the reasonable standard of review, the, the, rather the framework in Dore, Dore, Loyola, and TW, Trinity Western, a concern allowing administrator to uh, pursue yes. deci make decisions that reflect the responsibilities of the uh, department. However, when it comes to minority school boards, the minister's discretionary power needs to take into account the charter. Political uh, policy decisions should not be what determines the decision. The CNPF recognizes that a purposive approach towards S23 could help decision makers. The problem with current jurisprudence after Dore is the uh, difference between the decision maker and the school board. It is the department or the minister that has been given the right to make a decision. As this court's jurisprudence has shown since Mahe, the majority will not under, always understand the concerns or the circumstances of the minority. the majority could undermine Section 23 jurisprudence. The minister compared the admission of these six children to English parents wanting their unilingual children to go to university school rather than, uh, I understand your concern with regard to Dory. You're talking about the deference given to administrators, administrative decision makers. But does, not, does Dory not at least help when it comes to rebalancing, or balancing rather, various interests 
I'd say. Uh, there's an echo uh, coming from the intervener, making it difficult to interpret. The fact that there is a texture I've tried to state from the beginning that the standard of reasonableness could cause problems given the deference required. My time is up. Thank you very much. Uh, Dominique Caron. Dominique Caron. Chief Justice, Justices. The SANC will speak only about the second question, section 19.1 of the Charter. We have been waiting for this day and the possibility of a review of the Société des Acadiens decision and Société des Acadiens, as you know, Justice Bates, speaking for the majority, imposed a restrictive interpretation of section 19 of the Charter. Ju Justice Bates, said that the right to use French or English under Section 19 does not confer the right to be understood by the judge. Justice Betts justified this, justified in his reasons this way, that there's a distinction between the writing of 19, the wording of 19 and 20 in the Charter. And we would like to concentrate on this so-called distinction. The distinction would be that the right to use French or English under Section 19 is different, or would be different, than the, the right to use French or English to communicate in Section 20 of the Charter. I'm sorry to interrupt. I'll let you continue. But in your argument, will you be talking about the potential impact of amending the rule on Article 133 of the Constitution? That's a good question, Just Chief Justice. Some interveners were refused the right to speak because they wanted to talk about 133. It would broaden the debate. So we are going to stay clear of 133 for that reason. There, there were, the position of the SANB is that we don't intend to speak about Article 133. So yes, the omission of the word to communicate in Section 19 supports an interpretation that the litigant is allowed to speak either language but does not have the right to be understood directly by the justice by the judge rather we believe that this reasoning does not work based on new interpretations for example in bolac when we look closely at the wording of section 19 with a liberal purposive interpretation the word communicate in section 20 makes no difference Be we believe that whether it's written in the section or not, language serves to communicate. Using a language allows communication. And the 
a former Chief Justice, in his dissenting marks, remarks in Société des Acadiens, said as much. We believe that whether one wants to uh, use rights under 19 or 20, the result is same. There should be the ability to community, communicate. And that means communicate directly, without an interpreter. The reason is simple. Using an interpreter is an accommodation measure that relegates French to a minority, or the language to a minority language. It creates a two-tiered system. One language is filtered, the other is not, is not. And for the SNB, this is not substantive equality, nor uh, the right uh, to speak either language, to communicate in either language in the courts. I'm not saying that interpreters can't do a good job, but the original is always superior. This is reflected in Mercure at the time of a restrictive interpretation of linguistics rights. This court recognized that when it comes to the record, documents should be entered in the official language used so that the court, the, the the appeals court could have the direct meaning, not have to use the translations. And for the same reason, we think that interpretation should not be used. Prosecutors will say, including the Attorney General of Canada, that the right to use French or English is protected, is a protection of the right to choose the, lang the language to express oneself in judicial proceedings and that the right to under be understood would not solve all these problems. The Charter doesn't tell us about this right to be understood. What do you say about the idea that the Constitution does not solve everything, that it's in fact the legislator who does the work in the field? I would answer that yes, the legislator must do their job, but we need to uh, give meaning to the provisions on linguistic rights in the Charter. And to give this meaning, the justice or the judge must understand. Otherwise, as my colleague said, the person is speaking into a vacuum, into emptiness. For the, to give meaning to these rights, the just, judge needs to understand directly. Paul Daly. Hello, Chief Justice, Justices. No one is questioning the authority, the authority of this court in Dore or Loyola or Trinity Western. It is, however, necessary to properly understand the application of Dory in administrative decision makings. I have three points to this effect. Two 
clarify the nature and role of the values in charters of the charter in administrative decisions. First of all, the question of values used in this court's jurisprudence. Second of all, the distinction between values and rights and their distinct uses. And third of all, how to harmonize Dore with the question of reasonableness in Vavilov. First of all, charter values. This court used the term not only in Dore, but Loyola and Trinity Wester. Values are, in my opinion, a legal principle. That is the case in public and private law. There are principles and expressions of these principles. Charter values are simply principles that are applied in the textual provisions of the Constitution. The text is therefore fundamental because you need to be able to attach the values to constitutional provisions. In this case, we have the value of preservation and development of official language minority communities, and that value is consistent with various uh, wording in various wording in the Constitution. Given that values are principles rather than textual provisions of the Constitution, their role is perforce different. Values, in our opinion, are elements that the administrative adjudicator must take into account when making a decision, while the final decision must uphold the rights. In Trinity Western, decision makers had to be aware of the relevant issues. They also had to make a decision that was proportionate to the restriction of rights in question. Mr. Daly, would you accept that the only applicable framework of analysis is Dory? There, is this the only applicable analysis? This, when it comes to discretionary power that should be exercised uh, in compliance with the Charter, it's the only applicable framework. It's clearly what the court said in Doré. Uh, discretionary power must be exercised in conformance with the chart, charter. In my opinion, values have to do values have to do with the charter. They're not as constrictive as the law, the rights. Thirdly, how to enforce the decision-making framework in Doré using Vavilov. Vavilov showed that the administrative powers are the basis of decision-making authority. We have to look to the reasons to ensure that the uh, what was said in Doré has been respected. Also, Vavilov on reasonableness. Specifically, this court said that the administrative decision maker must significantly consider and must be 
responsive to, grappling and responsiveness of the interests of the litigants. Translating Doré into the Vavilov language, we see that when the values are relevant to an administrative decision, the decision maker must show in their reasons that they took significant consideration of the relevant values, all while being reasonably receptive. Thank you. These are the Yukon School Board submissions. Thank you. A question by Justice Martin. Yes. Is it necessary to have two categories? The procedure for Doré and the substance of the decision in Vavilov, or are those mixed? I wanted to uh, recognize the very perceptive question you asked earlier to that effect, and I want to recognize that the court uh, ruled on this in Vavilov saying that these are not two silos. They're I think we now have to look at this through uh, Vavilov in light of your uh, rulings on reasonableness. The court will take a 15-minute morning break. Thank you. Please be seated. Mr. Fai. Justices, I would like to refer you to the respondent's condensed book. And as well as the appellant's book at tab 14. First, with our condensed book, I would like to give a brief overview of the context. And then I will get into the constitutional aspect in the territory's case. Unless the court uh, disagrees, I will not get into any other points regarding the minister's decision. We will focus on our, we will let you look to our factum to that point. Pure administrative law, except for Section 23, given that all of the students were admitted to the school or were able to leave the country, and given that the question has since been answered, which have not been 
argued before you. If the court has any questions on any of these points, I would be pleased to answer. The analysis of Judge Rouleau that the minister had fettered her discretion was because she had not used the discretion empowered to her by law. So I think that is relevant, especially for her original decision. That's my opinion. Well, I was saying in the sense that the student was um, admitted to the school, so this uh, matter has been resolved. So would you say that the analysis was wrong? Well, of course, the other question is that since that time, the minister reconsidered the decision in light of Justice, Judge Rouleau's decision. But yes, and as we will argue, we think there was no obligation uh, to refer to Section 23. And that is what we will get into when we speak to the constitutionality. But when it comes to the factual context, the Northwest Territories is a vast region, as we know. But there are only about 45,000 inhabitants of the whole territory. 50% of them are indigenous, speaking many indigenous languages, including nine uh, indigenous languages, along with English and French. There are 1,200 francophones with French as a mother tongue, which is 3% of the population. Of course, the government is uh, democratic and operates in the Legislative Assembly, etc. Also, the Francophone School Board was established to manage Francophone education, and it funds and manages two schools, one Saint-Cyr School and the other is a school in Hay River. Under Section 23, there have already been many uh, judicial challenges, and courts, including this court, all expressed that the minister has the power to determine admissions. But even if the government's uh, authority was confirmed, what do you say about the weight that should be given to the school board's point of view? In the admission of non-rights holders? Yes, when the school board wishes to admit non-rights holders. Well, I might ask you a question in response. Was that decision made in considering Section 23 or in considering the ministerial directive? No, given a, it, when it is a decision on the admission of non-rights holders. Yes, but uh, is the decision made based on the ministerial directive or based on Section 23? I would say that Section 23 is not relevant. So you say that the school board has no, uh, does not have a relevant role in the residual discretion by the minister? No, I would not say that the school board has uh, no right to express its view. 
its point of view is relevant and should be considered among other points of view and considerations and I don't think the minister ever claimed otherwise. But when the minister does not consider the school board's point of view, there is still an obligation to look at the impact on the development and thriving of the Francophone community. So Rulo talks about the historic percentages of Francophones in the community. Is that not important to consider? I will come back to that, but I would say that under Section 23, no, it is not an obligation to consider those factors under Section 23 because the section defines a very clear, precise right and the obligations linked to it. Do you not agree that that has impacts on non-rights holders and on the community? Certainly rather on rights holders. Yes, that can have an impact on rights holders and on the communities, but is that a right under Section 23? I would say no, because the wording of that section is very clear in that respect. But regardless of the wording, my question is if you consider the various uh, rulings by this court and interpretations by this court over the years, most recently in 2020, where we mentioned that the interpretation must be generous and almost in order to promote the minority language community, would you not say that that argument falls short regarding Section 23? In the decision you are referring to, the court did, and rightly so, reiterate the importance of a liberal, reparative, generous interpretation of Section 23. But the court also recalled that there are certain limits under Section 23, in particular the, the uh, limit which is where numbers warrant. I will come back to this in more detail. And this is the uh, idea that the number of uh, rights holders needs to be uh, fueled even by non-rights holders uh, is what we challenge because the wording of section 23 is clear in spite of what interveners and the appellants argue. We're saying that there's that this is a right to have uh, immigrants and non-rights holders uh, admitted to their school board. Can we say that that is enshrined in Section 23 because the minister, rightly or wrongly, decided the way they did? But if there is a sufficient number to warrant a school being established, is it not then true, under the positive obligation, that substantive equality, which is the essence of Section 23, compels us, as the Chief Justice said earlier, and referring to various decisions, including the Yukon decision from 2015, 
that this substantive equality means that we have a duty to go above and beyond the rights of right, rights holders. So Mr. Lepage or rather so the, the school has no reason to exist if not the substantive equality and the positive aspect compels the minister to consider them isn't that true regardless of the moment in time whether it be before the school is created or afterwards section 23 is clear about what the government's obligations are the government's obligations are to ensure minority language education where numbers warrant regardless of uh, whether or not the school exists yet even once a school is created I do not believe that under section 23 the government has an obligation to expand the number of students and include non-rights holders to me that seems incompatible with the clear wording of section 23 not expand section 23 talks about promoting the development this comes or this comes out of the jurisprudence there is an obligation to uh, remedy we submit that it is clear that section 23 is a reparative but the reparative nature of this and the uh, directive shows this the directive by the Northwest Territories includes clear categories other than those under section 23 the directive is not limiting the minister said so at trial that she's not bound by the directive but afterwards the minister admitted that there was residual discretion and now we can't say she can't say in the same breath that there's this discretion and that she's pretending to exercise it I don't believe that is what I don't believe that is the case here I fully agree with you that when discretion uh, belongs to the minister the minister must exercise it and it is in the exercise of that discretion that the discretion is not exercised in a vacuum and the directive authorized a high number of non-rights holders to be admitted to that school the minister called this an exceptional case and the question was whether or not this was an exceptional case and I would say that in this case the burden of the applicants which which are not rights holders who are not rights holders to show that there were exceptional circumstances was very high and there had already been uh, non-rights holders admitted under the policy 
And if it was possible to admit certain non-rights holders who had a certain profile and taking into account the effect that, that would have on future decisions on admissions for non-rights holders, because if the minister accepted certain students who are non-rights holders but not others, well, we know that here in Canada there are a very high number of non-French speaking families who would love to send their students to francophone schools. And there are so many enrollment applications for these schools that these schools are being asked to expand in the Northwest Territories. So there is a strong demand, but the minister was therefore right to draw the line and say, well, these cases are not exceptional cases based on the directive. And uh, to conclude with the factual, with a factual overview. After the Northwest Territories set up the École Boreale at the request of the Francophone School Board, that school opened its door in 2005. Three years later, and the paint wasn't even dry on the walls, the school board asked that it be expanded, that an addition be added. And the minister was somewhat perplexed that in a small community such as Hay River, there were suddenly so many francophones. And quickly understood that more than the half of the pupils in that school in Hay River had been admitted by the francophone school board without the government's knowledge. In fact, half of them were non-rights holder children. And this was in the 2015 decision. When you're talking about the development of the linguistic community, isn't that what we're talking about? That Section 23 should promote the development of the linguistic community? Isn't it a bit reductionist to uh, simply ignore the purposes behind Section 23? The question is to uh, know what Section 20, the Section 23 objectives are. Can we say, legally speaking or judicially speaking, that a purpose uh, can be something that the provision doesn't, doesn't even uh, provide for? In Section 23, there is a, a question of remedy. Uh, there are guidelines. You need to be a, a parent only. You, we could have extended the right to grandparents. That would be logical, uh, considering the effects of assimilation. If a grandparent spoke French but lost their French, why did we limit ourselves to parents? Why did we limit ourselves to uh, citizens? in Section 23. You can ask those questions and even disagree with the remedies, but that is what the Constitution has chosen. Uh, now, perhaps you'll correct me, but the jurisprudence in its interpretation of 23. Let's take the example of Mr. Lepage and children of immigrants 
that is non-rights holders children this admission admission of those children would allow substantive qual uh, equality of the genuine educational experience of children of right holders rights holders rose devant that is a purpose of ex section 23 the chief justice recognize this in rose devant you're challenging the right from a contextual viewpoint and this attitude would limit the purpose and values underlying section 23 objects uh, purposes and values that this court has emphasized many times that's why mr lepage spoke of non rights holders children but their experience f for or towards right holders children in quebec Certainly, Anglophones, immigrants, allophones, and so on, are not allowed to attend uh, English language schools. They must go to French language schools. Does that mean that in Quebec we need to completely change the current system? I think no. The Constitution has provided that these rights apply only to rights holders and citizens, not non-citizens. How do you reconcile this argument, the argument that when you add a suitable number of non-rights holders to your school, you could help that uh, school develop and even expand physically? How do you reconcile that with the where numbers warrants requirement because you're talking about substantive or rather the genuine experience of minority children the educational experience should be substantially equal to that of majority children majority language children from that viewpoint if there were only five rights holders children in a community and there was a secondary school with 1,000 uh, non-rights holders, uh, Anglophones, let's say, in majority language. That means that to allow the equivalent educational experience, these rights holders, number five, it would need to be 300 or 400 to be able to enjoy the same educational experience that is not at all what this court's jurisprudence teaches and that is the case in the British Cumbria Francophone School Board the court reiterated the standard the fundamental principle in section 23 of where numbers warrant the internal limit yes there is this notion of equivalence and equal school experience or educational experience but not to the point of having the same numbers or the, the same experience without any uh, without an examination of the rights holders the number of rights holders 
In 2020, the Chief Justice said, I'll add that in the analysis required in Section 23, the three purposes of this section must be considered, preventive, remedial, and unifying. It is not just a question of a specific number threshold. You don't need only the numbers, you need to have a qualitative analysis. And these terms were already in the jurisprudence, in Arsenault. You can't simply stick to the numbers game. But, okay, yes, I agree, we can't simply rely on the numbers. If there were 100 students in a Francophone school and 200 or 300 in an English uh, school, we can't simply say, well, because there's only one third of uh, only one third of those numbers who are francophones well they have the same experience but does that mean that the government is required to increase the numbers in the francophone schools so that they do have the equivalent experience if we look at paragraph 25 of the decision in which chief justice said our court recognizes that, sec that Section 23 has an internal limit. This is the question of where numbers warrant. And the sliding scale was developed by this court. Section 23 imposes no constitutional obligations on uh, the governments when the numbers do not warrant, etc. There is no obligation under Section 23 if the we are if the uh, government is below the section 23 sliding scale limit and the court recognizes that funds are limited and that setting up a there's no requirement to set up school for us set up a school for a small number of pupils the numbers then the numbers question then is relevant and must be respected in 1982, the provinces accepted a, a historical step forward, a major step forward with major costs associated, and also insisted, perhaps wrongly so, that there be certain limits when it came to this financial obligation. But even in the directive, it says, there is the fundamental aspect of revitalization that requires supporting the demographic growth of the community. A limited number of non-rights holders' children would therefore be able to attend Northwest Territory Francophone schools. It's even in the directive. Are you saying that when the minister exercises her discretionary power, that the raison, raison d'etre of the director should not come into play in her decision. I, I fully agree that the raison d'etre of the directive should be respected, and it's very clear, clear. This is a public policy. It's not through the application of Section 23 that the government has decided to do this. The directive is doing this as a public policy. And what we're forgetting here is that the Northwest Territories government created specific additional categories that are not found in Section 23 
exactly because it wants to increase the number of students in francophone schools. This is a public policy. It is not an obligation. And when we do a DORE analysis, this optic doesn't uh, uh, come into play. And I agree with you, uh, Madam Ju uh, Justice, the government had the obligation to take the directive's raison d'etre into account. But in the Doré analysis, which should be the framework, we believe that, well, there's a first step. If there is a violation of a charter, well, we say there is no violation of charter under Section 23. The rights claimed by the rights holders here is not a recognized Section 23 right. That is, the right to uh, grant non-rights holders access to this education, this minority language education. But the DORE framework, or ruling rather, talks specifically about values. I think that when we're looking at Doré, Trinity Western, um, and Loyola, the, the word values does appear. It's everywhere. Yes, the, words values, the word values appears. And in the three cases, these are not cases where uh, the, value, the charter values were weighed against the societal needs or situation. It wasn't a question of determining if there was violation of rights, Section 23 rights. In three cases, the three cases then, it was really a matter of charter rights. So here would be the first opportunity to say, under a charter right, it is also possible to claim a breach of a charter value but in our view, it is not necessary to decide that matter now because according to our argument, a charter value, which is still a, a difficult concept, cannot simply be something that goes against the wording of the charter itself. That limit at least must exist to the uh, purpose and values of the charter. If the uh, charter aims for a different purpose, then it's difficult to say that there's a violation of the charter. I have another question to follow up. In paragraph 109 of your factum, your modified factum, you say here, that the minister may require exceptional circumstances before agreeing to admissions under the direction. Why? Why must the circumstance be exceptional or special while considering the purpose and the values of Section 23? 
I would say that once again the objectives of section 23 include obligations but also limits that would be weighed uh, regarding the, the financial costs. I think it's important to require exceptional circumstances because in the directive a high number of non-rights holders must be admitted. In the directive there are even three special circumstances above and beyond what's said in section 23 for the minister to accept non-rights holders at the schools. So there must be a certain limit. It can't be a system of free choice. And that's another expression that we find in this court's jurisprudence regarding Section 23, that the purpose was not to create a system of free choice. And if it is not, then what that means is that there must be certain limitations. And in this case, the minister certainly agreed to admit to the schools a certain number of non-rights holders uh, according to the directive, under those three categories in the directive, which was, by the way, negotiated with the Francophone School Board. But then the uh, government could be forced to expand a school that it had uh, built, so there must be limitations to say if we're going to go above and beyond what we've already provided for, then the circumstances must be exceptional. So in this case, are the circumstances exceptional or if I admit this child, am I setting the precedent to admit any child whose parent wants to send them to the French language school, which is uh, very often and uh, very fortunately the case. When the child already speaks French well, it's not just a matter of whether the parent wants to send their child to the school. There are many other criteria that must be considered. Certainly. And unless I'm mistaken, in the, case of, in the case of five children, they spoke little French. But that is certainly something to be considered. But at the end of the day, does admitting one child automatically give, uh, set up the precedent to admit other children in similar circumstances? Do the Francophones have the right to go to Quebec and attend English school? Section 23 must, in principle, have a uniform uh, enforcement across the country. But you just said that some of the children are shown by the evidence to have a low level of French, but that's not what the evidence says. Some had, com one had completed uh, several years of immersion, so I do not agree with what you just said. Yes, the level of French varied among the children, and I concede that that is an important consideration, but even if all of the children already spoke French, and just like if a Quebec student, a Francophone student, speaks perfect English, this does not create an exceptional circumstance in which the government will be obligated to provide second minority language education to that child.
I'd like to ask you a question about the so-called final decision by the minister. I find that at this point the analysis gets difficult because in the second paragraph the judge, the minister says that uh, Judge Rulo's decision had to be taken into account in the exercise of her discretion. And I'm at the first page of her letter where she says, New attention must be accorded to the essence of Section 23 of the Charter. So it seems at first that she is open to Judge Rulo's decision. Can you show me where in the letter she agrees? I think that I'm at volume oh. number three at 140 or 141 of her decision. She says she endeavors to respect this and in my opinion it seems that she's saying that the purpose of section 23 is limited to her text and that that was all that she had to do to obey Judge Rouleau's decisions. Am I uh, interpreting that wrong? Well, with all due respect, uh, I disagree. No, there's no need to say all due respect. Well, first of all, we have to take this court's jurisprudence into account regarding the reasons that must be given by an administrative tribunal. And a certain wiggle room must be given in this case. And there are a number of references made to the matter. So at page 141, the minister says, however, even though it is assumed that admitting these students would be beneficial for the minority community, I must also ask myself if this measure is necessary to meet the needs of the community and to protect the linguistic minority. So she does consider the question. And I would like to remind everyone, and I would invite you to read what the school board said on these admissions, that the assumptions that were made, or the, the claims that were made before Judge Rouleau, and which are being repeated today, uh, that the Francophone community was in danger, that there was a risk, well, no evidence, no submission to that effect was made to the minister. So I'm not talking about the reasonableness of the minister's decision, because at the end of the day, but at the end of the day, the evidence adduced must be taken into consideration what evidence did the minister receive, including enrollment numbers. I think it's indisputable that the conclusions the minister made on the number of enrollments of these schools, those numbers sh demonstrated uh, stability, if not a growth in those schools. Even though over some years there was a decline in enrollments, but I think we must defer to the minister on those facts. It certainly was not an unreasonable decision in that respect.
I'm not trying to uh, question uh, the facts, but what I'm saying is that the uh, presence and admission of non-rights holders is not only beneficial for the child themselves, because it would be good for the child to learn French, and the minister says so. And uh, she very kindly suggests other ways in which that child could pursue learning French. But Judge Rouleau said that admission of non-rights holders will promote the prosperity of the linguistic minority community. Does the minister deal with this? And if so, is it sufficient? Well, at page 141, she says, I also must ask if this measure is necessary to address the community's needs and to protect the linguistic minority. At page 142, to do this, I will take into account the demographics of Yellowknife, the uh, enrollments over the past years of Saint-Cyr School, and uh, financial matters relating to non-rights holders. So at, uh, ultimately we see that she did turn her mind to these matters. I believe it's clear. It's less clear for me, and when she mentions assimilation rate, she gives examples of reasons why assimilation is happening, but does she not does she, does she believe that the admission of rights holders will, will uh, offset assimilation? Perhaps I misunderstand your question, Justice Kassirer. I'm not asking whether she was right. I'm asking whether it was reasonable. The minister had a decision to make on whether to admit the children or not. The criterion cannot be, if I admit this child, will it contribute to the prosperity of the Francophone community? Because if so, every uh, application for admission would have to be approved, because mathematically speaking, of course, any non-rights holder who becomes a French speaker contributes to the prosperity. But this cannot be allowed, given the wording of Section 23. The minister says, we are authorized to admit a certain number of non-rights holders with limitations. But there are certain factors that must be taken into account. One of them is whether or not the case in question has exceptional circumstances, or whether in the case in question, if we admit this child, it will set up a precedent where we will be forced to admit other children, any children who wish to be admitted to the school. You used the term necessary, the admission must be necessary. Does Section 23 require for the admission of non-rights holders to be necessary? 
is the threshold a threshold of necessity? Section 23 in no way requires the admission of non-rights holders. That is fundamentally incompatible with what the Constitution stipulates. It limits rights holders, it categorizes people who have rights, and it sets an obligation for the government. It calibrates the government's obligation based on not the number of children who wish to attend the school in question, but, but don't be confused because the government also has a constitutional obligation to promote and to contribute to the prosperity under Section 23. So it is not a matter of what the minimum is or what the necessity is. There are objectives for the government to promote, to respect the minority language community and obligations for unity. So it is an objective. So how can we say that we will only admit those children in where the cases are absolutely necessary? I don't understand. Thank you for your question, uh, Justice Karakatsinis. My answer is that indeed the Charter and the, thresh and the Constitution establish a threshold and a minimum. It is up to the government and legislators to go beyond that threshold, but the Charter establishes the threshold. This doesn't stop, and the government may pretend to forget it. It doesn't prevent the government from exceeding that threshold. Legally speaking, though, the obligation ends at the threshold set by the Charter. All right, let's go back to the question of the exercise of discretionary power and the Doré analytical framework. Is the fact that the government has the duty to take positive measures, has a positive duty, does that make Section 23 objectives more important, it gives them greater weight in the balancing. The government must determine and courts must consider whether there's a violation of Section 23. I say there was no breach here. Whether the in the framework, Dory framework, is it possible to uh, examine the purpose and the values? I doubt it, given the three subsequent cases. But the charter values do not include the in, the uh, obligation to inflate the numbers of students by extending admission to non-rights holders. As I said, however, 
with regards to her discretionary power, she must take Section 23 and the directive into account. And this directive, for public policy reasons, allows for the development of the Francophone community. I see I only have another 15 minutes or so. If you'll allow, I would like to examine the question of Section 19 of the Charter. First of all, we suggest there is no reason to rule on this question here. And as, as uh, it should be said that a request for a, tri a bilingual panel was made, this was refused. There was no formal objection made, however. There was no claim, uh, there was no claiming of rights that are being claimed today. There are parallels with the Société des Acadiens, perhaps, where the court Uh, the court refused the application. If the appellants are right on the second question, what is the suitable remedy? A new court of appeal hearing on the question, on the second question? The language spoken in the court of appeal. If they are right, I think the remedy would be a new hearing at the court of appeal. No? No, not in these circumstances necessarily, because this was a judicial review. We're at the Agara standard, and so this court could could stand in even for the first instance judge and rule. However, so I don't think it would be necessary to have a new trial at the Court of Appeal unless it were specifically to rule on Section 19. We think, though, that such an important question, that is to even perhaps overturn Société Acadien and MacDonald, that, that requires more than a few paragraphs in a brief to argue. It would require full evidence why? Because it questions not only this court's jurisprudence in Société des Acadiens and the important repercussions, it also questions the Northwest Territory's status. That's a very delicate question, and I think that a few paragraphs in a brief would not enable us to rule. The appellants say that in BOLAC, even, Bo, even if it did not overturn Société des Acadiens, the interpretation chosen in the, the, the Société des Acadiens interpretation was set aside. Yes, indeed, BOLAC completely changed the perspective when it comes to how to approach linguistic rights. Fundamentally, however, the Société des Acadiens ruling is sound. I'd say that the decision relies 
on the purposive approach toward Section 23 and the general context in which Section 23 applies uh, is also examined that includes Section 17 and Section 20. In Section 20, there is a different expression. The use of to communicate is the wording. That's not what is said in 19. Use, the word use, is used in 19, Section 19, about courts and about uh, parliamentary proceedings. The right to use French and, or English in parliamentary debates and proceedings. That implies, in our opinion, and that's part of the reasoning in Société des Acadiens, because there's a parallel with uh, 132, 133 rather, because the same term is used, the right to use with regard to parliamentary debates and proceedings, and in courts, it is inconceivable that the framers wanted rights holders to not only to be able to express themselves in either official language, but to be the, they were required to be understood by other parliamentarians, directly understood. So we feel that the decision is sound and does not need to be overturned, despite the major change through BOLAC. In the appellant's uh, defense and following uh, Justice Cote's question, it's as if the 133 uh, interpretation or the Manitobans Article 23 interpretation or the 19 interpretation is evolving or is making these texts evolve. Uh, it's universally recognized, recognized now that Article 133 recognizes the principle of authority the legal authority of both French and English texts, legal texts. It's not written in the article. It simply says they need to be printed in both languages. Is there a way to, uh, in relying on BOLAC and other principles <coughs> of constitutional law, to go as far as what as the as far as the as far as the appellants want us to go no that would create a bilingualism an obligation of bilingualism in the parliament that all parliamentarians would have to be bilingual and even if we stick only even at the very minimum the judiciary this question is even more important in the Northwest Territories because if this same principle had to be applied of judicial bilingualism, given that the Northwest Territories has an official languages act, 
with nine Indigenous official languages, there would be uh, a real need for polyglots in the legislature of the Northwest Territories. And that would also be the case in our courts. You would need to be fluent in some 10 languages in the Northwest Territories if you were to apply this principle of official languages and their role in courts. Given the uh, major repercussions and the analysis that was made and continues to be made of Section 23, there is no reason to question the Société des Acadiens decision. However, if we were to question it, and if there were a change regarding Section 19, then one would perhaps have to foresee whether Section 19 applies to the territories. If it did, if Section 19 of the Charter was considered to apply it was considered to, to me not only the, that one could not only use the official languages but also be able to be understood directly. This same result, the, the result would not be applicable in the Northwest Territories given its Official Languages Act. Why? Because there are not only the French and English as official languages but various Indigenous languages. So if Section, if the Charter requires direct understanding in courts, I think we need at the least to admit that in the Northwest Territories, because of its Official Languages Act, Section 9, the law, the law Charter does not apply in our province, or territory rather. Even if we limited the application only to French and English, the impact on the judiciary and quasi-judicial instances would be major. If the provisions applied also to, if the given the provisions apply also to quasi-judiciary instances, and there are many, many in the Northwest Territories, especially with regard to land claims, these instances require Indigenous presence. That's the very raison d'être for these quasi-judicial organizations. If bilingualism, French and English, were required, it would be impossible for these instances to function. And I believe it is impossible to claim that this, uh, this should be the case under the Official Languages Act of the Northwest Territories. We think that Article 19, Section 19 applies to courts established by the Parliament. That is not the case with our 
courts which have been established by the territories. That is the wording in Section 9 of our Official Languages Act. And that is also why we have a Court of Appeal. It has been established by the territories. As the court said in Saint-Jean at 133, or 33 rather. As well as 19, cannot have contemplated the inclusion of the Yukon Territory or its government or legislature in these sections. And the purposeful silence of the Charter must be respected. Moreover, the Charter goes so far as to equate the Yukon Territory with the other provinces of Canada in Section 30 in order to specifically make operative in the Yukon Territory those Charter sections which apply in all provinces. Et en effet, selon l'argument des appelants... And in the argument by the appellants that provinces and territories are delegates of the federal government, that would mean that they are not provinces as they claim because then Section 23 would no longer apply because Section 23 applies in the wording of the uh, Charter to provinces. And in any case, the courts dismissed uh, this uh, argument about the authority of provinces and territories. And I would refer you to the uh, federal court's decision, which is at paragraph uh, 37 and 42 at tab 30. Judge Moreau ruled in the Fortier decision, and that's in paragraph 45. I will be looking at the English version. To the contrary, involves the proposition that there is no such thing as a law of the Northwest Territories. Which is false. And because the federal court draws an analogy with the municipality, while recognizing that this would be unjust to the territories. And let's also recall that the courts uh, ruled that the distinction is important. The municipalities uh, are not bound by the same obligations. For all of these reasons, if there are no further questions, we ask the court to dismiss the appeal with costs. Thank you. Mr. Demers. Chief Justice, Justices. If you wish to uh, respond to the second thing asked to you by the uh, appellants, we would challenge it in this way. The right is protected for all participants in the judicial in judicial proceedings to choose the official language they wish to express themselves in. First, we have uh, linguistic rights, which are included in the Canadian Charter and the different acts with similar provisions are all worded in a similar way. And secondly, how to proceed so that the fundamental right is preserved. There might be a key there that would help us overcome this impasse and understand the importance of being understood before courts.
via constitution, charter, and quasi-constitutional uh, provisions are incomplete, and this is deliberate. The power is not limited for the government and legislatures to use a French and English in general. The first point that flows from this is that the progress towards the ideal, and the ideal is that judges would not require an interpreter or would understand the arguments being presented before them. And this is a shared responsibility. Legislators have their point of view to express, and Parliament has expressed itself to uh, increase the importance of Section 19.1 and obligation for uh, tribunals, the obligation for the judge to directly understand the arguments presented regardless of the official language used. The appointment of judges at court has greatly changed since 2016 and now interpretation is no longer required. legislatures of certain provinces. In paragraph 17 of our factum, we cited the different acts that introduced similar provisions uh, to 19.1 and that protect the right to express oneself in French or English before the courts of certain provinces including Saskatchewan and uh. Alberta. Now, what is important to keep in mind is this. Linguistic rights in, before courts do not always come from Section 19.1. There are a number of sources that may be constitutional, quasi-constitutional, or that may come from the criminal code even, and they contribute to all rulings by the court, no matter what the source of these rights, language rights are still fundamental. And when the court identifies um, an element of a case that has to do with language rights, whether it be in common law or any law, this is essential. And the label is not necessarily important. The uh, importance of language rights will always be the same. Now, another important principle, which will help to clarify. In Société des Acadiens, the court dealt with dealt with language rights and the element that I referred to before goes hand in hand with this. There is, no, there is not an obstacle for the right to be understood to be uh, implemented. It's important not to forget that the protection guaranteed by 9.1.19.1 and other similar sections are very important for Section 133, and these are individual protections which are beneficial to all those who participate in the judicial proceedings. 
The judge and other participants can use French or English as they choose. Not only when they speak verbally, but also when they write their reasons. The individual rights of the right to use French and English is exercised and not the institutional right. It's the personal right that is exercised. We have uh, dealt with this thoroughly in the factum, unless you have questions. One of the most concrete and important points of the appellants is to obligate judges to provide their reasons in the language that was used at the hearings. And if both languages were used, then translation in, of both versions is uh, mandatory. Now, how do we implement the right to use French or English for this to be meaningful? Traditionally, the broad and liberal interpretation of the section of the Charter or of language rights were focused on the text. And that is the starting point. In 2015, you said so in Caron, and you also said so a number of times in other rulings. The text is the point, uh, is the starting point. And in 1901, the text is specific and it guarantees the right to use French or English, English in extremely specific uh, circumstances and it is limiting. The rest of the text in 1901 does not give any textual anchors to be able to extrapolate the meaning of the words used. The broad and liberal interpretation leads us to examine the context. So in what context and under what rules of law can this be interpreted differently such that either uh, equality uh, of the law be achieved or otherwise? Two points. Number one, interpretation. We have made certain arguments regarding interpretation. We think it's important to go back to what the Tran decision set out regarding the quality of interpretation. Also, continuity, faithfulness, impartiality, and concurrence are five uh, elements of high-quality interpretation, and if the quality is not there, then that in and of itself is problematic. Participants have the rights to express themselves in the language of their choice, and if the quality is not there, then that right will not have been respected. French and English are spoken and have been spoken across the country for years. In a parliamentary debate, interpretation has been a present, and peace treaties are negotiated, uh, trade deals are negotiated and so forth through interpreters. The International Criminal Court, the United Nations, etc. also use interpreters. In 2023, there was 
mention of interpretation being of such poor quality that it was a violation of the linguistic right. My next point, and I think that this court said it well in the 2019 decision, the meaning of the rule, or rather, here, the, the choice of uh, language was judged to be a jurisdictional choice. And it is possible to refuse a court proceedings in its absence. Also, we have the right to be understood, which is the same fundamental right of being able to use French or English in court proceedings. Thank you. Thank you. Manuel Klein, Chief Justice, Justices, I would like to raise three points with you today. First, the Quebec Attorney General is intervening today, even though Section 19 of the Charter does not apply to Quebec. Section 133 of the Constitution Act of 1867 does. In Société des Acadiens, it was found that these two uh, provisions are similar. And this was reiterated in Mercure a few years later, as we've already heard today. The Quebec AG is intervening to this effect today. Secondly, there is no uh, grounds that would justify a revision of the Société des Acadiens decision. The appellants base themselves on Bolac, saying that language rights should be interpreted restrictively. However, we saw earlier, and everyone seems to agree, that if it is true that the majority does dismiss this approach, we can't dismiss the entire Société des Acadiens decision. Société des Acadiens, or rather, we also see that there was no intent to dismiss the entire decision, but only the rules of interpretation within it. There's also requirements to uh, take Judge Bastarache's uh, comments from Bolac Moreover, the Bolac majority recognizes that protected linguistic rights under the Constitution are a minimum and they are an unachieved structure of linguistic rights that must be completed by the legislator, as my colleague just stated. To take up Judge Betz's words in McDonald, this minimum is far from being consistent. Inconsistent, rather. It places English and French on equal footing, guaranteeing litigants that they may use the language of their choice, French or English. That's not the case for other languages. For example, in Conseil scolaire francophone de Colombie-Britannique, 2013, this court ruled that British Columbia can have unilingual court proceedings. 
the 86 trilogy is consistent with recent rulings from this court. The interpretation of linguistic rights starts with the interpretation of words. Caron was on linguistic rights. This was the case in a recent, this was also the case recently as well. Section 7 or 15 of the Charter require an evergreen interpretation because of their broad language. However, Section 23 is very clear. It has been clearly interpreted for years and does not need to be re-examined. This interpretation does not have to be re-examined. There is no institutional obligation that courts be bilingual. In fact, courts may use one or the other language for their proceedings. This provision, however, does require federal legislators have their Hansard and other proceedings translated or interpreted. As the majority indicated in Société des Adiens, recognition of these rights, recognition of the right to be understood would cause incalculable consequences. It would require all judges to be bilingual. All, it would require everyone in a courtroom, judges, uh, lawyers, court officials, and others to be bilingual. And they could change their decision to speak in one or another language at the last minute. As a, w without the requirements of bilingualism, one might think that there could suddenly be a witness who prefers to speak one or another language, a party who has an urgent request for a judge on call, and even someone who agrees to speak the official language of the judge may change their minds, mind rather. A request for translation may violate linguistic rights in all these cases, the judge would have to refuse to listen to the case or even withdraw if he could not have a, an interpreter or a translator. The only way to, ex to avoid this would be to require bilingualism for all judges, which would deprive Francophones who don't speak English. This case, the case would be all, uh, the same for francophones, anglophones who don't speak French. We don't believe that this situation would be ideal. If this court does review its interpretation of Section 19, we do not want it to review the, its interpretation of Article 133. Chief Justice, Justice Keith Brown. Today for the Attorney General of Yukon. First. Section 19 of the Charter does not apply to territorial courts. This is demonstrated by the historical and legislative context of the establishment of those courts, which forms an important part of Charter interpretation. Second, Doré review, and Doré is the proper framework here, 
cannot be based on an asserted charter value that erodes the actual bargain struck in the text of a charter right. Moving to section 19 of the charter, as a preliminary point, Yukon agrees with the NWT that under principles of judicial restraint, this court ought not answer the constitutional question of whether territorial courts are established by parliament under section 19 unless necessary. However, if the court does get into it, we say the answer to that question is no. The legislative and historical context of territorial courts shows that they are not established by parliament within the meaning of section 19. Now, the appellant's basic position in their factum, which they did not really get into in oral submissions today, is that territories are not provinces, so therefore they must possess all the charter obligations that parliament and federal institutions do. However, we say the required charter interpretation analysis is more nuanced than that. As we know, the charter was not enacted in a vacuum. Determining its meaning requires reference to the proper linguistic, philosophical, and historical context. And the appellants mentioned that section 19 does indeed have a distinctive context. Here, in our submission, there are two pieces of historical context that are germane here which both show that territories cannot be conceived of as effectively federal administrative delegates or uh, administrative bodies to which section 19 applies. First, there has been broad judicial recognition that territorial legislatures are not accountable to Ottawa, but only to the electorate. By the late 1970s, most characteristics of provincial style government had been instituted in the territories, which now have modern Westminster style responsible government. And this is reflected legislatively in the strong manner and form requirements in the federal legislation that sets out territorial jurisdiction, which requires parliament to consult with the territories before introducing any bills that might affect territorial legislative authority. Secondly, the legislative history of the territorial appellate courts specifically before the enactment of the charter shows that the framers would not have conceived of them as being established by parliament. The courts of appeal for both the Northwest Territories and Yukon were established in 1960 by a federal law. However, both territories passed their own enabling legislation for their appellate courts in 1970. And then a year later in 1971, parliament repealed the federal laws related to territorial appellate courts. So what we can take from all this is that section 19 of the charter was enacted against a historical and legislative backdrop of a decades long trend of greater autonomy and independence for the territories, both generally and in the specific context of the administration of territorial appellate courts. Those courts had been established by territorial law as opposed to parliament for over a decade before the charter was settled. The appellant's position by contrast harkens back to the earliest days of territorial governance where they were administered by federal appointees taking directions from federal ministers. But that model began changing as early as the first decade of the 1900s. And this court should not adopt an interpretation of section 19 resting on an understanding of the federal territorial relationship that was well outdated even by 1982. I'll move now to my second submission regarding Doré and charter values. Yukon asks this court to make clear one basic proposition. Whatever the overall scope of administrative law charter values, 
they cannot have the effect of unwinding the bargain struck in the text of a charter right itself. And in some ways, section 23 of the charter is the perfect testing ground for that proposition because it has rather clear internal limits. Unlike universal and open textured rights like section seven, section 23 sets up very specific and prescribed categories of students who are entitled to education. And Maitre Fai had a, a detailed back and forth with the court on that this morning. However, you heard almost nothing about the actual text of section 23 from the appellants or interveners and how it fits into their theory of charter values here. They, they did make submissions from uh, about their view of the freestanding purposes of section 23, but as this court has emphasized very recently, such as in the Quebec numbered company case, as well as in city of Toronto, charter interpretation must start with the text. And critically, the most generous interpretation of a provision will most likely overshoot what the text of the provision is actually intended to address. The appellant's position unwinds the bargain struck in section 23. They've structured a charter value that effectively reads out express internal limitations that are found in the actual text. But as a constitutional matter, section 23 requires that government outlay public funds only where the presence of rights holders themselves justifies it. So the appellant's approach lets creative litigants do indirectly what they cannot do directly getting around what they perceive as a deficiency in the text of a charter right. Excuse me, is, sorry, I'm, I'm going to stop you there. Is that, is that a fair reading of Section 23 and of the jurisprudence of this court, including Conseil Scolaire decided in 2020, which asserted the object and purpose of Section 23 and discussed in the same breath its limits? These are not irreconcilable ideas. It's not unwinding a constitutional bargain. It's having two ideas in one's head at the same time. I, I don't see your point. It's, Section 23 is not, uh, in my view, perhaps mistaken, uh, antithetical to the use of Doré analysis simply because it has built-in limits. And, and no justice, I absolutely agree that Doré is the proper framework here. And you heard today from the appellants and certain interveners that Doré might not apply. In my submission, Doré must apply. This is a judicial review case and Doré is the JR framework when the charter is engaged. And the appellant's position uh, would amount to creating a special section 23 exception to Doré and this can't be so. It would be contrary to the direction in Vavilov of simplifying standards of review rather than creating bespoke carve-outs that distract the parties from focusing on the actual substance of the dispute. That's what the court in Dunsmuir called law office metaphysics. And in my submission, that ought to be rejected. Now, recall in Doré, in Justice Abella's words, the framework is supposed to work the same justificatory muscles as the Oaks test, but in the context of reviewing an administrative decision, where the constitutionality of the overall enabling statute is not itself an issue. And to respect the political compact of the charter and to avoid eroding the separation of powers between the courts and both the executive and the legislatures, in my submission, both Doré and Oaks must first be focused on a rigorous assessment of whether the charter applies at all. And of course, that is the first step of the existing Doré test. 
asking whether the charter is engaged before moving on to proportionality review. And at the end of the day, Yukon says the charter cannot be engaged by an asserted value that conflicts with the content of a charter right itself. And, and that is a proposition that has broad implications for administrative law um, and judicial review more generally, and not just in the context of Section 23. In closing, and all of that being said, this court has equally been clear that provinces and territories may legislate beyond the constitutional minimum of Section 23. And this is exactly what both the Northwest Territories and Yukon have done here by creating non-rights holder policies in close collaboration with Francophone school boards. To paraphrase this court's recent observations in Sharma, determining the admissions of non-rights holders is therefore a policy matter, not a constitutional imperative. And it's one that should be recognized and praised for what it is, a collaborative initiative to deliver policy above the constitutional floor agreed to by the framers of the charter. Those are my submissions. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Maître Ravon, une réplique. Maître Ravon, Ms. Ravon. Monsieur le juge en chef, messieurs et mesdames les juges. Chief Justice, Justices, my first point is that my colleague and his arguments on Section 23 so for the respondent, mentioned the Quebec context. Of course, protection of the French language in Quebec is an important factor that must be reflected on, that should have been reflected on by the minister in the exercise of her discretion. As the court ruled in Solsky, an education minister not only needs to consider Section 23, but also must look at the particular situation in the province in question. That was at tab 3 in the quotation. There is not really an equivalent uh, to that in the Northwest Territories. Now for the next point. My colleague mentioned a few times Section 17 of the Charter, so uh, parliamentary debates. The right is not for uh, members of Parliament to be able to directly understand each other. It's for others to be able to understand the members. So the clerks of the House, etc. And this is what Mr. Larocque was saying on behalf of the research chair. So we cannot exaggerate the scope of the right. For Section 20 of the Charter and the distinction between use and communicate, we have to be very careful because when the court no. drew the distinction in Société des Acadiens, use meant there was a unilateral right and communicate meant that it was bilateral. So here we're talking about the right to be understood through la interpreter. That is not bilateral. We can't take that decision and decide to base on a textual analysis of Section 20 of the Charter. There's nothing to suggest that this is the right to be directly understood 
whereas the term use would mean to be understood without an interpreter. My colleague spoke about Section 9.2 of the Official Languages Act of the Northwest Territories. We have to be very clear. Section 9 includes two very different objectives. First, to give the Northwest Territories the power to uh, promote the status of official language minority communities. That's 9.2. On the other hand, 9.1 guarantees the equal status of French and English in the same way as sections 16 to 20 of the Charter do. Given the historic uh, agreements made between the territories and the federal government. And that is at tab 36. Section 9.2 of the Official Languages Act, which was which was adopted in 1990, six years after, or four years after Société des Acadiens, is not the product of a point in history where it was obligated, and it cannot have the result of limiting the scope of this section. This is what was decided in the agreement. This is based on the objective of trying to decrease the scope of Section 19. For my last point, I would say that when no remedy, if no remedy is given by this court for the blatant uh, violation of the appellants, that could further dissuade the uh, discourage the use of French in court proceedings. Let's not forget that in this case, the uncontroverted evidence that you have in our condensed book shows that the interpretation was incomprehensible. And we ask that this court grant a remedy for that violation. And that is what is required because these are substantive rights. Thank you. I would like to ask you one last question regarding costs at the end of your factum. You say that you are asking special for special costs at all levels, especially uh, particular when it comes to the violations of linguistic rights at the Court of Appeal, and you say that new evidence is required before this court. Your colleagues on the other side challenge your request, saying that it is not appropriate for, to have special costs and that the respondent did not act in bad faith and is not responsible for the approach taken by the Court of Appeal. Do you insist on your request for special costs? after what your colleague has argued. In any case, the appellants are requesting a special uh, remedy for the violation of linguistic rights at that time. Or alternatively, the minimum would be for this court to declare that there was a declaration, that there was a violation of linguistic rights. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to all counsel.
for your arguments. The court will take the case under advisement. Thank you.